Listeners, before we get into the episode, please be forewarned that it contains extreme descriptions of violence perpetrated by the serial killer Ted Bundy. Discretion is definitely advised, and please do not listen to this episode around children or others who might be affected by its graphic content. Thank you, as always, for listening. In the early morning hours of January 15th, 1978, 21-year-old Kathy Kleiner lay asleep inside the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State University. Unbeknownst to her, an escaped prisoner named Ted Bundy had figured out the Cayo house had a faulty lock on its back door and made his way into the sorority house where he murdered Margaret Elizabeth Bowman and Lisa Janet Levy while they slept. In an adjoining bedroom, Bundy found Kathy and her roommate Karen Chandler and bludgeoned them both. Kathy's jaw was broken, her shoulder was lacerated, and her right cheek was ripped open and Karen suffered a broken jaw, a concussion, a loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Both miraculously survived the attack, which ended after a car's headlights illuminated their room at the exact right moment, scaring off Bundy. Tallahassee detectives determined that the four attacks took place in less than 15 minutes with an earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard absolutely nothing. While Bundy's exact victim total is unknown, he confessed to 30 murders committed across seven states between 1974 and 1978. Though this is not what happened in Kathy's case, Bundy's typical MO was to approach a female in public, lure her into a vehicle parked in a secluded area, at which point she would be beaten unconscious, restrained with handcuffs, and then taken elsewhere to be sexually assaulted and killed. Bundy was able to lure victims typically by faking some sort of physical impairment like an injury to earn his victim's trust. I'll spare you some of the gorier details of his crimes, but they were sadistic. I don't know how else to describe them, to be honest with you. As we talk about in the episode, Bundy has been glorified into a sex symbol in our culture, but make no mistake about it, this man is an absolute monster. After my conversation with Kathy, even saying his name makes me sick now. In 1975, Bundy was arrested and jailed in Utah for aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault. He then became a suspect in a list of unsolved homicides across several states. Facing murder charges in Colorado, Bundy escaped from prison, and that is how he wound up in Florida and in Kathy's bedroom at the Chi Omega house. Bundy was ultimately recaptured in 1978 and was tried for the Florida homicides for which he received the death penalty. He was executed at Florida State Prison on January 24, 1989 by electrocution. It's very rare that I'm rendered speechless, and I absolutely was in this conversation. Today you'll get the privilege of hearing from Kathy Kleiner Rubin, who is the author of the book A Light in the Dark, Surviving More Than Ted Bundy, which came out October 3rd. This is the first book by a confirmed survivor of Ted Bundy, and as Kathy writes, he has become a legend, and our voices have been muted or ignored. It's time we were heard. Yes, it is. And with that, here is her story. Kathy, thank you so much for this beautiful and harrowing and courageous memoir. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So why was it important to you to write this book? Because you did not have to, you didn't owe anybody anything. So why was this important to you? 
I wanted to tell my story of what I've been through and hopefully that'll uh, reach people and touch them. But most important, I wanted to write about the women that Bundy killed and attacked and murdered. And to me, each one had a, a story and a dream and, and hopes. And I wanted to bring that um, to light and let each one have a voice so they can talk about themselves through me. That's so powerful. Well, you are a survivor. And as you just laid out, you're a victim's champion. You write that the victims have become nameless shadow figures, while Ted Bundy, whose name I just don't even like saying, had become legendary. And you write in the book that my hope is that my story shines a light into the space that has been dark for far too long, of course, referencing the victim. So we have a cultural obsession with Bundy, which persists even still today. I think it's disgusting. He's almost become a bit of a sex symbol. And that had to and has to be, especially to you, so difficult as a survivor of his. Yes, it is. I mean, to talk about him is to dishonor his victims. So um, I don't even, I don't think of it as a person or a real a real um, thing that was out there. He was so deranged mm -hmm. and just such a terrible person. I don't see him as anything else but that. Yeah, well, I actually was a fan of the true crime genre until maybe three or four years ago, one of my best friend's aunts actually disappeared. And so I'm, I'm not able to get into the genre the same as I once was. And, you know, in, in addition to the Bundy obsession, America has a true crime obsession as well. And I, I wonder how that makes you feel as, as a survivor. Is that difficult for you to take in considering all that you've been through? Um, it isn't. I take it for what it is. There's so many um, true crime fanatics out there. And I never was into the genre of true crime until I got attacked. And that's where I met my true crime family. Mm -hmm. And they are so comforting and, and just treat me so nice and give me so much support that it's easier for me to talk about it. But again, the women are who should be recognized. Yeah, absolutely. And as I told you before we got on, I'm going to say all of the names of all of the victims because we know, unfortunately, the perpetrator's name, but I want uh, your book inspired me to make sure that we know the victims' names as well. And you are a survivor, Kathy, in more ways than one you've lived a life. We'll talk about lupus and cancer in a moment, but you were attacked as you slept in the Chi Omega House at Florida State University in 1978. So I want, I want to go back to what was life like for you before the attack? You were in college. Tell me about life in the early half of January of 1978. I was a pledge at Chi Omega Sorority House, which means I chose sorority and they chose me to become a sister. Mm -hmm. Life was great. I was going to frat parties and you know, playing with my friends in their co-ed dorms. My mother insisted I live in a, um, in a single dorm. Mm -hmm. But all my friends and co-eds and I'd go visit them and we'd go shopping and go to the movies and study and study and study a lot because I really wanted good, good grades and I didn't want me playing around um, affect that at all. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought it was so ironic and 
tragic that your parents wanted you to move into the Kyle house because they thought you would be safer there and you weren't even supposed to be living there, but your parents insisted you did end up getting a room in the house, the back keypad door lock to the house, which your parents trusted as any parent would was broken. This allowed him to gain entry into the house. And by the way, he had already been arrested. He had escaped prison when he landed in Tallahassee. So again, as we spoke about before we started recording, if it's not too difficult, walk us through the night of the attack, which was January 15th, 1978. Bundy approached the back of the house and he saw a couple sorority sisters go in the back door and noticed that they didn't have to put the combination in. Mm. So he grabbed an oak log from a pile of firewood we had sitting sitting by the back door. So he grabbed that and he walked through the house. He entered the rec room and there was nobody there. This was about three o'clock in the morning. So he walked around the corner to the front of the house and there was a foyer and a beautiful chandelier, which this night it was dark and wooden staircase that went up the stairs and there were two hallways, one on the left and one on the right. And he chose to go down my hallway. Mm. My room was on the second floor and it faced the parking lot. It was a great room. I had a roommate and the room mirrored each other on each side. You walked in and to my left was my dresser where I had my clothes. And on top, I had my jewelry and other things, trinkets. And next to that was my desk. And then Next to that was the footboard of my bed. And if you look, my headboard was against that back wall and it mm. had a beautiful bank of windows. And we always kept the window curtains open because we hung plants on the curtain rods. Mm -hmm. So when we had to change, uh, we always went to the uh, bathroom to change clothes. But this was a beautiful room, uh, loved it there. And when he walked in, the sorority, he came upstairs and went to the first bedroom. And that was Margaret's room, mm -hmm. Margaret Bowman. Mm -hmm. He attacked Margaret and strangled her so hard that his uh, she about popped her head off. It was the size of a small watermelon. At that point, he left her for dead. He covered her up, her, covered her up and the sheets were placed right under her neck. The next room he went to was across the hall. And that was Lisa Levy's room. Mm -hmm. He walked in and closed the door. She was asleep in her bed. And he went and attacked her and hit her with the same oak clock he had killed Margaret with. He took her on the floor and he raped her and did terrible things to her. And he bit her. He bit her in her buttocks and on his her breasts. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know at that time, but these bite marks were actually like fingerprints because yeah. no mouths are the same. So then he left her for dead and went across the hall again. And that was my room, room number eight. Mm -hmm. I was asleep in my bed. It was dark out. Even with the curtains open, it was a dark room. Next to our beds, between our beds, we had a little footlocker, a little chest that we kept my glasses and some books on. So that was between our desks. And as he went into our room, he opened the door and the bottom of the door scraped against the carpet. And it kind of woke me up because um, I'm a light sleeper anyway, but it woke me up enough to know, I don't know what that sound is. So I tried to wake up. And then the next thing I heard was this person tripped over that little 
footlocker mm. that we had between our beds. And this was a loud noise. So now I'm awake and I'm looking to my side and I see someone standing right next to my bed. It was a dark figure. But as I was looking at him, he raised his arm up over his head and he had that piece of firewood, that piece of oak wood. Mm -hmm. And he slammed it down on my face so hard that he ripped my cheek open so you could see my teeth through my cheek. And he broke both jaw bones. And my chin was so badly broken that there wasn't any bone there. They had to actually put wire around my chin to make it a bone again. And it was, it hurt so bad. It hurt so bad. And I almost severed my tongue with the blow that he had given me. So now I passed out and I was making noise, but my roommate heard him and she started to get up and wake up. So he walked across and tripped over that trunk again and went to her side of the bed and proceeded to hit her with the same piece of firewood. After he thought that she, he had killed her, he heard me on my side of the bed and I was gurgling, making sounds because I couldn't talk. So he came back over to my side of the bed and I saw him raise his arm. But in the meantime, I had scrunched down in my bed and I was as small as I could be and I squinted my eyes and I thought if he couldn't see me, he wouldn't hit me again. Mm. But he had his, ra his arm raised and just before he slammed it down on me, there was a light that sh shined into my room and it was a car light in the back parking lot that our room faced. And it was someone dropping off a sorority sister from a date. And that light shone up into our room so bright and so clean that I could see, even with my eyes closed, I could see it. And this person that was standing next to me also saw it. And he was illuminated. And I could see him a little bit more, but I never saw his face. And at that point, he thought he, he was seen either by me or the car that was driving by and illuminating the room. He was spooked. Mm -hmm. He was spooked. So he ran out our door. And he ran down the stairs and he ran out of the out of the front door. Meanwhile, I'm in my bed and I'm yelling and I'm screaming for help. But again, all I was making were gurgling sounds. And I don't think anyone could hear me. And I touched my face and it was warm and sticky. Mm -hmm. And I could feel the blood in my mouth. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I was just holding myself in a ball. At that point, my roommate got up out of her bed and walked out into the hallway. There some sorority sisters found her and walked her back into our room to put her back in her bed. They turned on the lights and then they saw the terrible, terrible sight. And that was my roommate, bloody and in her bed. And then they saw me bloodied, sitting up and in a little ball. At that point, I yelled and yelled and no one could hear me. But because of my roommate, the sorority sisters called 911. And the next thing I knew, there were police officers next to my bed. And it made me feel so safe and so secure that because there was a policeman there, that I wasn't going to get attacked again, that this guy wasn't going to come back and hurt me. Right. And as I laid there in bed, the paramedics came and they took care of me and bandaged me as best as they could. And they carried me in a stretcher down that beautiful wooden staircase. And as we got to the front door, they opened it up 
and it was freezing. It was cold and misty out. It had rained and it was just, just the mist hung in the air. And as they carried me out the front door, there were fire, the lights from the fire truck and the ambulance and the police cars, and they were all fuzzy and a blur. And next thing I thought was I heard the police officers radio gawking and the firemen and the ambulance. And I looked to my side and I thought I was at a carnival mm. because in my mind I had gone somewhere that was totally different than what I had just been through. And I looked and I could see the carnival and I could hear the people talking and the Ferris wheel in the very back. And then they carried me into the ambulance, at which time I passed out again. Wow. I mean, I just don't have, I don't have words. I've been doing this work a long time and I'm not sure that I've ever um, been rendered so speechless. Uh, the writing, this right, thank you for, for being so brave to share that. You actually shared before we started recording that that is in some ways cathartic and healing for you. Yes, it is. The more I talk about it and I walk through it, what I just told you, I'm literally walking through the room and I hear him, tr the, him trump, uh, trip over the trunk and I put myself there. I close my eyes and I'm right there as it's mm -hmm. happening. But I find it's healing because I can talk about it and I mm -hmm. do talk about it. Yeah. So that does help me. Well, you talk about it and you write about it and the writing about this horrific moment in your life is abundantly powerful. I want to read this passage. You write, he saw a woman who had the nerve, you who had the nerve to live when he had sentenced her to die. And I think in hindsight, that he actually had the nerve to be frustrated that my murder was not going to plan that then the miraculous moment you write the light shattered the darkness as you said there's a light from these headlights outside that were so bright it disrupted him and then i want to read again from you you write he froze in that light it was like a switch flipped on him and brought him out of his fervor he was spooked and i think he was worried he had been seen he fled the room and as soon as he disappeared the car curved around the bend and the beautiful white light disappeared and you write that the light saved me. So how often do you think, because uh, obviously it's in the book's title, but how often do you think about the miracle of that light and light plays such a prominent role throughout the book? Um, I know it saved my life and through the other things I've been through with my health and through recovery of this, I always see a bright light when I was scared and lonely I took that light and I made it my strength mm -hmm. and um, it comes to me. It seems like when I need it, when I feel lonely or scared, I put that bright light in front of me and whatever is bothering me seems to go away. Were you ever able to find out who the driver of that car was and, um, and, and say anything to him or her? No, I haven't. Um, it was a, a guy that was bringing home a date uh -huh. and everything was so, traumatic and happening sure. at the same time that I never knew who it was. I just sure. didn't get to that point of knowing. I, I would just wonder, you know, I mean, there's somebody that's, that's out there, hopefully still here that saved your life and has maybe no idea, you know, and that's, yeah. that would be, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that anybody who was connected with the FSU Cayo house remembers what they were doing that night. And so somebody out there knows they dropped a date off at the Cayo house at three in the morning or whatever it was. And that would be a powerful conversation, but you, uh, your roommate was attacked too, as you said, she also survived miraculously. Do you, do you keep in touch with her or any of the other survivors? 
Um, I have not over the years. I've written a couple letters, but um, I don't think a lot of people want to think about it. Everyone has their sure. own way of healing. So I have not talked to her about it. And I really um, haven't been in touch with any of the sorority sisters since the attack. Yeah, you actually, that's, that was an interesting piece of the conversation about how you felt a little disenchanted by the sorority um, in the aftermath of this. I felt like um, I was just thrown out of school and I was mad. I was hurting and I was mad because I had to leave my sorority sisters. I had to leave school, which I enjoyed so much. Mm -hmm. And I was thrown home with my parents in Miami and it just didn't seem right. I know all the other girls were living their lives and proceeding on in their college years, but I was just mad that I had to go away from that. Well, obviously you can never go back to your old life after the attack. So no doubt, Kathy, you've grappled with PTSD over the years. How have you taken care of yourself through, through all of this? In the beginning, I, I was wired shut. My mouth was wired shut for three weeks and then it had to be rebroken and realigned. So my mouth was shut for a total of nine weeks and I could only drink what came through a straw. So my parents and my sister tried to come up with unique ways to, uh, to feed me with milk or water, or whatever they were making for me. And I had this feeling, this bad feeling around me, like a black cloak just encompassing me. And it scared me and I didn't want it there and I didn't want to live like that. Mm -hmm. So in the distance, I pictured a very small island with one pine tree, palm tree and one little sand chair sitting on it. And I wanted to get there so bad because to me it represented something to look forward to. And I took little baby steps to get to my island. And it took me a long time with baby steps to get there. And I looked behind me and that big black mass with baby steps behind me. And as I walked and walked, it finally reached my little island. And I put my toes in the sand and I lifted my head and looked forward and that black mass was completely gone. Mm. It wasn't anywhere in front of me. It wasn't behind me. It wasn't going to bother me anymore. So that's one way I coped with healing and getting through that section of my life, that time when I was scared and nervous and hurting. Yeah. Well, there was a time after the attack where your attacker was still loose. And granted, you were in the hospital, as you said, but I can't imagine how jarring it was to know that for at least a time he was still free. There was that time and I was in the hospital recuperating. And again, my, my face was all bandaged up and I was hurting. So it didn't occur to me that he would come back to hurt me because there was a police officer mm -hmm. that was standing my door and protecting me. So I knew that I was safe. I wanted to go home, but I didn't want to go home at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I knew that this wasn't going to be my my life. I was going to get over this. And before the police officers drove me to the airport in Tallahassee to go home, they took me to the sorority house and they stopped in front of it. And they asked me to walk in and tell them if anything was missing from my room. And I didn't want to do it, but an officer took each elbow and help me walk up that beautiful wooden staircase, mm. which to me wasn't as pretty anymore. Sure. So they walked me up and I saw that Margaret's bedroom was door was closed and yellow tape was around it. 
and the same thing for Lisa's room with the yellow tape around the door. I then walked down to my room, which is the next, next room over, and I saw the yellow tape. And they lifted it up, and I walked in, and they said, is anything missing that you can tell on your dresser? Mm-hmm. And all I could see was black dust for the fingerprint testing. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell if anything was missing from the dresser. So I looked down and I saw my desk and then I saw my bed and the bed, my comforter, which I loved. I had bought the six months before um, was all in a ball and was brown in color color because Mm -hmm. of my dry blood. And then the bed itself was covered in blood and the wall that I slept next to was covered in blood and all this. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying to myself, this is what happened. This is where it happened. And this is what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And in the future of that, I always thought that I don't have to remember this. I don't have to make make believe this happened or uh, think about. I knew exactly what happened. And I was going back to the car and back to the airport in a lot of pain. But that's my new life was my new normal was to sit at the house with a lot of pain with my family. That's so mature of you because you're only, are you 21 years old when this happened? I was 20. 20, 20 years old. And the maturity of that, and but but as we'll talk about in a moment, you had already been through so much. I mean, there's nothing could have ever prepared you for this, but you had already been through so much in your short life and you would go through so much even after this. But after he was apprehended, you had to face many moments in the same room with him for court appearances. I don't know how you did that, to be honest with you, how, especially at such a tender age, how did you find the inner strength to handle that? Well, I was subpoenaed, first of all. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't have a choice. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I don't know if I would have chosen to do it or not, but um, it was the deposition that I had to go to first. And it was in Tallahassee in a conference room with a conference table. And on each side was the prosecution and the defense And I sat down at the head of the table and at the other end was Ted Bundy. And he was looking at me and I was looking at him. And I don't even remember what the questions were I was being asked, but I didn't want to take my eyes off of him. And I didn't feel scared. I felt mad, mad that he changed my life and mad that I couldn't do anything about it. So I asked, they asked the questions. And then when I was asked to leave, I walked out in the hall with my parents and I almost threw up. It was like such a mental and physical stepping to that table that really uh, upset me. And the other time I saw him was through the grand jury. And again, it was at a table and he was sitting at it and I had to sit at the other end. And this time he looked at me like, you're just wasting my time. Just go away. Mm. I want to just go on. I'm going to get free of this. They're not going to convict me. Come on, leave. And I just looked at him and I saw his black eyes. Mm. And I thought, now I'm mad and now I'm angry. I was really mad at him. The more time that went between seeing him, the more I was angry. I wasn't hurt as far as thinking he was going to hurt me again. I just had this feeling that we needed to put him away. And again, all I looked at were black eyes. Mm. The next time I saw him, I was subpoenaed again to go to the courtroom and testify against him. And as I sat down in the um, testimony box, I saw the defense on one side 
the prosecution on the other side, and right next to the defense was Ted Bundy sitting there. And I remember he had a light blue jacket on, and all I could see was him. Now he had his his chin holding his hand, and he was just looking at me um, like, come on, get this over with. They're not going to convict me. And he also wanted to be his own lawyer, which in all cases was terribly wrong for him. But at that point, I told my story. And then the last question the defense asked me was, is this man the one you saw in your room that was supposed to have attacked you that night? And I wanted to put him out. I wanted to help convict him and make sure he wasn't going to see the light of day again. But after that question, I had to look at the defense and says, I don't know because I never saw his face. Mm -hmm. And that has bothered me ever since that, that time happened because I just really wanted him to go away. I wanted to help do it. So after the defense, um, that was the last question I was asked to leave and the grand jury um, was, was indicted him and the jury proceeded. Remind me how long after the attack, all of this was taking place. He was, um, he was caught about two weeks, I mean, about two months after the attack. Uh-huh. And um, he was actually leaving Tallahassee. He went through Lake City, where he attacked another, another little girl, Kimberly Leach, who was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And then he was leaving Pensacola. And he was caught driving a stolen car with wrong plates on it. So this was all happening. It seemed like it took forever and it was in slow motion. Yeah. But in actuality, it was pretty fast for him to catch him. And they didn't know who Ted Bundy was. At that point, they didn't have, in 1978, they did not have uh, computers that Mm -hmm. were going to help identify him. But after he attacked Lisa, uh, um, I'm sorry, Kimberly Leach, they had a connection they thought with the killers in Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. So they started to put things together and that's when they took him back to Tallahassee and the um, saga started in 1979 was when the trial actually started. Okay. Okay. You write the victims. We meant nothing to him, but we were going to be the ones that sent him to the electric chair, which is exactly what happened. He was executed on January 24th, 1989. You continue, I would always be a Bundy victim, but there was something healing about knowing his story was stopping and mine was continuing without him in this world. As he prepared to be executed, you write that he was becoming increasingly desperate. One guard later described him as a coward in the final hour. He had murdered so many women and girls and now he bleated, please don't kill me. Of his death, you write, Bundy's execution closed a chapter, but the grief remained. Of course it did. Can you explain that a little bit for us? The grief for me was something I had to handle, but the grief for the families and their friends and their things they wanted to do. And that's why I write about each one, because each one had a story and each one the families had to cope with this in different ways. And it just break my heart that to hear this and in my mind to think about it as I am right now, that there's no words I can say to help them. The only thing I think of is instead of thinking the horrible things of losing their loved one, if they could think of the happy things, all the things they did together, going shopping or 
going to a movie or those are the things that need to remember by each of the victim. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, most people know his name who, who I don't even want to say it anymore. It just tastes like vinegar on my tongue as I, as I said it, but, um, but so few people know the victims' names and your book changes that. And, and as I said, as I promised you, I will read all of the victims' names in the outro of this episode. And it's, I need it to be the other way around. I need us to, he's, he is dead and gone. I need us to remember these women and girls who never had a chance to live their lives or like you who did have a chance to live a beautiful life that you're still living, but it was forever altered and changed. And that's where the focus needs to be is on the victims. And, um, I, I speaking, you know, I just, I'm amazed at, at your life, all that you've been through. That was the attack in 1978 was not your only brush with death before the attack you battled lupus. And after that, you bat long after that you battled cancer. So I just, the resilience that you have, I, I'm wondering how you continue to fight and what inner strength do you possess that so many of us don't? I think I wanted to live and that I didn't want to live in a little box with no windows in a room and just hide out and not do anything. I always wanted to continue. It was my life and I wasn't going to let him or anyone else dictate me, dictate to me how I wanted to live. So I wanted me to live, I wanted to live myself, but also my family. My family was devastated. Sure. Having had lupus when I was so young, I was 13. I had chemo and lost all my hair and I was homebound from my seventh grade of school. And I couldn't talk to anyone. I couldn't play with anyone because we were all afraid that they would get me sick. And I would look out the window and watch the kids play outside and knew I couldn't join them. And I would stay home alone all day. My parents worked and I would watch TV. But most of the time I was in bed and I was crying because I was hurting and I felt sorry for myself. And I thought this was the new normal. And then I said, no, it's not. I'm going to live better than this. And at home, I would call zero, dial zero and talk to the operator because I was so lonely during the day. And just before my parents came home, I would get out of bed and put on my shorts and my flip-flops. And I would go and sit in front of TV and watch TV. And they walked in. I'm like, oh, are you home already? You know, it's been such a great day. I didn't realize what time it was because I didn't want them to suffer more than they had already been through. So I think lots of my, um, my reason to living was also my reason for helping them to live through this as well. Mm -hmm. And every time I've gone through something, there's always been people around me and near me that also always want to say, what can I do to help you? I don't know what to do. And I found out that you said, if you said something like, could you move those flowers a little bit so the sun can shine in? They're like, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And that gave them something to do and it made them feel better than just watching me sit there. So that's something else that I wanted to live for was mm -hmm. to help other people and not to worry about me. Yeah. Kathy, what would you say to yourself in your darkest moment after the attack? That I wasn't going to live like this, that life was going to go on, even though I was in a dark, ugly place, that that was not going to be my new normal. That was not going to be what I was remembering to do. And I was mad. Like I said, I was really mad that I couldn't continue at FSU and my friends. So that was pretty dark for me. That was a dark time that I was missing all my sorority sisters and the house and the fun and the frat parties just to be swept away in an instant. And I think 
that was one of the darkest points I had been in. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't want to live like that. So I crawled out of it. And mainly I saw my little island and I walked to it. And that really was healthy for me. And it showed me that there is light on my island and I can get to it and I can change the way I was thinking. Well, you have led a beautiful life and it's detailed in the book. After his execution, you write his light as I said, light is a theme throughout the book. His light had finally been extinguished, but mine still burned and I was going to make sure it burned brightly. You also write towards the end of the book that I hadn't, Kathy, this might be my favorite line from the book. I okay. hadn't just, I hadn't just survived. I had lived. There's a difference there, right? There's a, a yes. massive difference there. It's so powerful. So my last question for you, Kathy, is just as I asked you what life was like before the attack in the early part of January, 1978, what has life been like after, and what are you most proud of from your life, which has truly been a life so well-lived? Um, when I was 34 is when I was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer and there, um, the treatment was chemo. And that was very upsetting to me to have to go through chemo again. And it was nine months of enduring the pain and the suffering. And again, I was going to get over this. I had a radical mastectomy and I just didn't want to live like this. My body was deformed in my head, although it really wasn't. It was just my head made it seem a lot worse than it was. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I got over that. And after nine months, I started reconstruction on my breasts so that it would look normal with the other one. And, um, that made me feel good. That was a good thing. And again, I wanted to walk out of this. Yeah. But after I had my breast cancer, I found that I wanted to have another baby with my husband. So we got pregnant and it wasn't, um, I got, I was so happy and it wasn't eight weeks later that I lost my baby mm -hmm. and I could do anything for myself. I could heal myself, but I couldn't take care of that little baby. Yeah. And so many women go through miscarriages and everyone handles it and treats it differently. And in my case, I just felt sad for the baby. And I did another, uh, we had another pregnancy that ended at 12 weeks. So in that, um, I decided this, this was enough. I couldn't go through this trauma and these feelings that came back to me of being helpless. So we decided to go ahead and buy a sailboat. We called her Serenity mm -hmm. and we called her my new baby. And we continued life, living it and enjoying it. You have lived a beautiful life. You have been through so much. You are an inspiration to me. This book is incredible, and I cannot thank you enough for your bravery in this memoir and coming on the show today. I'm so thankful. I, I'll be honest with you. I was very nervous about asking the question about the attack. I'm so thankful to, heal, to hear that that heals you because um, I just am very thankful for your victim's advocacy you've really opened my mind a lot through this book about the true crime genre, just about a lot. And from the bottom of my heart, I wanted to thank you listeners. The incredible book is called a light in the dark surviving more than Ted Bundy. It is out as of October 3rd. Thank you so much again. Thank you. And I want to say I couldn't have written the book without my co-author, Emily Lebeau Lucchese. She was um, amazing. She mm -hmm. took my words and my thoughts and wrote them down so eloquently that 
I live through it again as I read the book and read the book. It just takes me there again. So she was phenomenal in writing my story. You two are a dynamic duo. The book is, and not only is the story powerful, it would be powerful even if it wasn't really that well-written, but it is. So listeners, please, please go get the book. Again, it is called A Light in the Dark, Surviving More Than Ted Bundy. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thank you for asking me to be on the on your podcast. And I want to thank everyone to listen to me. Thank you. As famous as Ted Bundy is, I bet you that the vast majority of you, including myself, to be honest with you, prior to speaking with Kathy, couldn't name even one of his victims. And he has many, many victims, as you are about to hear. This is very difficult, but I want to read Bundy's victims by name because they deserve at least that. They deserve a whole lot more than that, but this sociopath robbed them of a full life of all that they could have done, of all the love they could have given and received. To the families and friends of these women, I am profoundly sorry for your loss. And please accept this as my meager offering at recognizing the bright light that was your daughter, your sister, your friend. As tempting as it may be listeners to fast forward to the end of the episode and go on with your day, I encourage you to not do that. Please take a moment as I read these names to send love in whatever way feels most comfortable to you, be it a prayer or a positive thought to those who loved these women and to these women themselves. These women who were meant to grow old, get married, have children, excel in their chosen careers. They may be just a name to you, but they are everything to someone somewhere. He murdered Linda Ann Healy, Donna Gail Manson, Susan Elaine Rancourt, Roberta Kathleen Parks, Brenda Carol Ball, Georgianne Hawkins, Janice Ann Ott, Denise Marie Nasland, Nancy Wilcox, Melissa Ann Smith, Laura Ann Aim, Deborah Jean Kent, Karen Eileen Campbell, Julie Lyle Cunningham, Denise Lynn Oliverson, Lynette Dawn Culver, Susan Curtis, Margaret Elizabeth Bowman, Lisa Janet Levy, Kimberly, Diane, Leach, and so many more who remain nameless. Survivors of his attacks include Karen Sparks, Carol Duranch, Kathy Kleiner, Karen Chandler, Cheryl Thomas, and Leslie Parmenter. Suspected victims include Anne Marie Burr, Lisa Wick, Lonnie Ree Trumbull, Susan Marguerite Davis, Elizabeth Potter Perry, Rita Patricia Curran, Joyce Margaret LePage, Carrie Mae Hardy, Vicki Lynn Holler, Suzanne Ray Justice, Rita Lorraine Jolly, Catherine Mary Devine, Brenda Joy Baker, Sandra Dean Weaver, Rhonda Stapley, Melanie Suzanne Cooley, Shelley K. Robertson, Nancy Perry Baird, Deborah Diane Smith, and Joy Kathleen Harmon. I am jarred by how frightening the randomness of all of Bundy's crimes are. My mom was Bundy's exact type physically, the right age, the right look, the right everything for him in the late 1970s. Had Bundy gone to, say, the University of Kansas where she was studying instead of Florida State, I, I shudder to think. Even in the FSU Cayo house, had he gone left instead of right as he entered the house, things could have been so much different, certainly for Kathy. 
there wasn't a ton of method to his madness. And if you happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, by no fault of your own, you encountered absolute evil. Kathy's book again is A Light in the Dark, Surviving More Than Ted Bundy. It is out right now. Kathy, 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 your bravery and courage and dogged insistence on making sure these victims are remembered is admirable. I hope in my small way I can contribute to that effort. And may we never forget the victims of Bundy's violent crimes and all others. And may we stop glorifying those who commit them.